Today we're going to go over Philippians chapter 3. We are in this incredible book that is um, really changing lives. We get to have all of the follow-up from the worship services with people who are being transformed and making appointments and, and making decisions in their life, um, particularly with those who are struggling. This is a book written to people who are struggling. They're actually suffering pretty intensely, and this is a book to give them courage. It's a book to strengthen them and to say, you've got this. But before we get to Philippians chapter 3, I want to ask us a question. Now, this is a very important question, a critically important question, and I'm going to ask you not to answer it out loud. We had an epic fail last service. Oh, my gosh. We had ushers just pulling people out. Don't answer it out loud. I really don't even want you to answer it quietly because we're going to walk through this together here. Now, here's the question. Is the world getting better or worse? And if you've been raised in a Christian church, especially a Western Christian church over the last 40 years, you might have a knee-jerk answer to this, but just, just hold off, big fella. Follow-up question is this. Where is this world ultimately headed? What's the end game of this world? These two questions are extremely important in setting our worldview because the answers to these questions will determine how we engage this world. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here. If we believe the world is getting worse, headed for destruction, how might this impact the way we engage the world? For example, Toys R Us is heading for destruction. There's just no way around it, right? It's in bankruptcy right now. Brick and mortar toy stores are just no longer a survivable business model. If you had some windfall of cash, and don't we all wish we would, would you go out and invest in Toys R Us right now? Probably not, right? Are you excited about the Browns football team right now? No, head, you know, headed for destruction. So what we believe about where we're heading determines how we engage. And for quite a while, at least the last 50 years, the Western church has thought the world is getting worse and headed for destruction, and so we separate ourselves from the world. Why would we engage and invest in this world, and why would our heart be for the world if we believe, because our pastors have said so, or we've read some, some book, that the world is getting worse and headed for destruction, why would we then be motivated to improve things around us? Conversely, if we believe the world is getting better and headed for a beautiful future of peace and prosperity, how might this impact the way we engage the world? Amazon.com's a big deal. They're about to spend $5 billion and create 50,000 jobs in some very lucky community. And there are 50 major U.S. cities begging Amazon to build in their city. Why? Because it's worth investing in. Talk to your financial advisor about investments in Amazon.com. When there's hope for a better future, we're going to invest, we're going to engage, right? Yet the Christian church believes theologically, and this is fairly new, again, 50 years, that the world's getting worse and headed for destruction. And so we, we escape the world. Our theology is about escaping the world. It's all doomed. Get me out of here. That is not the message of Philippians chapter 3. It is not the message, frankly, of God's word. Now, if there's anyone who is going to believe the world was getting worse and headed for destruction, it would be the church at Philippi. They were kind of a mess. They were a small Christian community in a fairly small city of 2,000, and they were getting pressed on all sides. They were hated by the Jews because uh, the Jews wanted legal adherence to the law, and yet the message of Christianity is a message of grace and forgiveness and love. So the Jews were persecuting the church. The Romans began to think that the Christian church was somehow a threat to the Roman Empire, so the Romans started pressing down against them, so much so that even the Apostle Paul the leader and founder of the Philippian church was sitting in jail as he was writing this book. So if anybody has a right to think that the world's going to get worse and headed for destruction, it's going to be the Philippian church. 
But the Apostle Paul gives them a different message. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians, despite the difficulties that you're facing, God's love never changes. God is at work through it all. And this world is headed to a really great place. You see that? This world is headed to a really great place. And some of you are thinking, I've never heard that in church before. I actually talk about it quite a bit around here. This world has an exciting future, a really exciting future. And because of the confidence that is being built up to the church at Philippi through the book of Philippians, the church was building strength because they were hearing from their leader that there is hope for this world, that yes, there are struggles for the short term. And sometimes those struggles can be very serious and very scary, but trust God that his grace never fails. He's working through it all to make us more like Christ, and this world is heading to a very, very good place. Now, in order to get the message of this, we have to understand who the enemy is. There is an enemy that's all around the New Testament. There's enemies of Jesus. There's enemies of the Apostle Paul. There's enemies of the church even right here in the book of Philippians. The enemies are the Judaizers. Have you heard of the Judaizers, the legalists? These are the Jewish leaders who were obsessed with God's law. They're obsessed with the Ten Commandments, obsessed with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and their obsession is to compel people to obey God's law. Now, we might think, well, is that such a big deal, compelling people to obey God's law? Well, yes, it is. In fact, it's a great evil. It is a great evil to compel people to obey God's law, and I'll tell you how. When Jesus was performing his ministry... These legalizers and Judaizers were, were attacking Jesus at every turn because Jesus was preaching love and grace and forgiveness and compassion and service to other people. And so the religious legalizers were saying, no, Jesus, you cannot preach grace because that takes people away from obedience to God's law. These are the ones who conspired to put Jesus to death because of his message of grace and ministry to the poor. These are the ones who convinced the Roman authorities that Jesus was a political threat to the Roman Empire. These legalizers are the ones who gave Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. These Judaizers are the ones that lied to the crowds in Jerusalem, convincing them that Jesus was a fraud. These are the ones that put Jesus through multiple illegal trials on that Thursday night so that he would be crucified on that Friday morning. These are the ones who began killing Christians just months after the church was started in Jerusalem. They began killing Christians because of the message of grace. These legalizers, these Judaizers are the ones who dragged the Apostle Paul into, um, outside the city to be beaten. Uh, at one point, they threw rocks at him to stone him to death. And again, they reported him to the Roman authorities. And he's sitting in a Roman jail as he is writing this letter. So the enemy of the gospel, the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of the apostles, the enemy of God's heart are the peddlers of religion. And unless we look at the entire New Testament as an epic battle between the religion peddling Judaizers and the message of grace, you'll never be able to read the Bible correctly. From Matthew through Revelation, it is an epic battle between the gospel of grace and the religion peddling Judaizers. Every phrase, every word. So if we're gonna understand Philippians, particularly chapter three, we have to understand the enemy. The enemy is the religion peddlers the law peddlers, lying to people and saying, if we obey God's law, then we'll be blessed. If we obey God's law, then we'll be in his favor. If we obey God's law, he'll answer our prayers. If we obey God's law, we'll earn eternal life. That's the enemy of the gospel. So here we're in Philippians chapter three, and the apostle Paul begins with an invitation. He says this, finally, my brothers. Now, keep in mind, Paul is a pastor. So when he says, finally, don't believe him, he's halfway through the book. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that word rejoice, I don't like the word um, because 
it's an irrelevant word. Nobody uses the word. If somebody asked you in the office, hey, how are you doing today? And you said, oh, just sitting here doing some rejoicing. They think you're totally weird, right? We don't use that word at all. But the, the Greek word that's used here is actually a pretty common word, and it simply means calmly happy. That's what rejoice means. Not goofy happy, but calmly happy. And we can be calmly happy even when things are difficult. When we're going through a hard time, health problem, relationship problem, financial problem, whatever it is, emotional problem, we can be calmly happy because what Philippians chapter three is about to tell us is that we are standing on solid foundation. We're standing in a good place. Even though what's happening right here is difficult, we're standing in a good place so we could be calmly happy. First, in Philippians 3, we can be calmly happy in God's grace. God's grace is really what it's all about, right? So Philippians 3, 2, the Apostle Paul then attacks people who are coming against God's grace. He says, watch out for those dogs. Now, when we hear the word dog, we think, hey, my dog's pretty, you know, clean, fluffy, cute, and my best friend, right? In the time of Christ, in the apostles, dogs were the vermin. Nobody had them as pets they were just scurvy, rabid, filthy creatures, right, attacking people uh, in the streets. And so uh, basically we would call them rats. So the Apostle Paul says to the legalizers and Judaizers, the peddlers of religion, the peddlers of law, watch out for those rats, those men who do evil. Now, whenever we see evil, maybe in the Bible, we think, well, that's the immoral evil people, right? Well, that's not real evil. Real evil, in God's word, are those who peddle religion, and in this case, Paul says they are mutilators of the flesh. Well, that's interesting. What does Paul mean by mutilators of the flesh? Well, keep in mind they're Judaizers, and so they take God's law, and they want to push it down to everybody, and part of God's law includes circumcision laws. Circumcision laws are pretty clear in the Bible. The male of the Jewish uh, people are to be cir circumcised on the eighth day of their life. Very clear. Not six, not eight, eighth, seventh day of their life, they are, to, eighth day, they are to be circumcised. <laughs> Sorry, not the seventh, not the ninth, the eighth day. And, and this is very clear in God's word. It's one of the things that separated out the Jewish people from other people. It's just a sign. Um, but the Judaizers now say, if you want to earn God's favor, if you want to be in right standing with God, you have to obey God's law, including circumcision. So anybody that wanted to follow Jesus Christ and wasn't circumcised because they weren't Jewish, the Judaizers would say, hey, get in that line and you get yourself circumcised. Now, you can just imagine that the line for men to be circumcised as adults is very small. <laughs> and there's a big debate. There's a debate in the church. Do men have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus Christ? I mean, there was a big debate. They had a whole council in Jerusalem. It was a big old deal. They were obsessed with circumcision. So Paul just makes fun of them. He makes fun of them all the time. In, in, in Philippians 3, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. In Galatians, he says, hey, if you're so excited about circumcision, cut off the whole thing. <laughs> Bible has some funny things in there. So Paul is warning them. Now, he's warning them for good reason. Because these Judaizers are the ones that not only came against Jesus, but these are the ones that Jesus was screaming at in the temple courtyards. You brood of vipers, you, you dead men's tomb, you hypocrites, sons of hell, fools, blind guides, and murderers. That's what Jesus called these people. Paul calls them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. What were they doing that was so bad? Well, the Judaizers were imposing biblical law on people of faith. They were imposing biblical law on people of faith. I want to pause there for a little bit because this sentence was very carefully crafted. And, and you might look at that sentence and say, well, that doesn't sound evil to me. 
I mean, they're imposing biblical law. Isn't biblical law good? And I would say, well, hang on a sec. Biblical law is good, including the Ten Commandments and all the commandments of the Old Testament, the Torah, right? Biblical law is good if it's rightly used. Biblical law is bad if it's wrongly used. The Judaizers were taking God's word, meant for one thing, and using it as a weapon over here, and, begin, and became an, an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the gospel, and an enemy of the church and the Apostle Paul. Here's what the law was meant for. Galatians 3.24 says this, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That's why the law was given. Ten Commandments, Old Testament law, it was given to lead us to Christ, that we might be made right with God by faith. So once the law leads us to Christ, we don't need the law anymore. And yes, I just said that. The Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, was meant to lead us to Christ. In other words, it said, here's God's standards. Here how, here's how God wants you to live. And every single one of us say, well, I can't do that, can I? And the answer is, no, you can't. None of us can perfectly obey God's law. None of us. And so the guilt that is generated by God's law drives us to the grace of Christ. Did you hear that? The guilt generated by God's law drives us to the grace of Christ. And because Jesus Christ obeyed the law, we really don't have to. Because Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty when we break God's law, then we don't bear the penalty of it. Then he rose again from the dead to give us eternal life and to assure us that we are in perfect standing with God, even though we're lawbreakers. That's the whole point of this. It goes on to say this. Now that faith has come, this is so clear. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Because we have faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer need to be supervised by the Ten Commandments. We no longer need to be supervised by the Old Testament law. Why? Because we are in perfect standing with God by his forgiving grace through Jesus Christ. The law is not some ladder to earn God's acceptance. The law is not some ladder of obedience to say, hey, God, aren't you pleased with me now? Now answer my prayers and now give me the assurance that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. This religion peddling and law peddling is useless because the law was meant to bring us to Christ. Now that we are in Christ, we don't need the law. Hebrews calls it obsolete. What's our status now? You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of us, sons or daughters of God because we believe in Christ. That's what salvation is, right? Salvation is receiving freely new and eternal life by simply believing what God has already given us. God already gave us grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And when we come to the realization of his grace, that's when salvation rises up in us because we know we're loved. We know we're forgiven. We know, there's no, we know there's nothing that separates us from God. We don't live in our guilt and our shame. We are free to enjoy being loved, which means we are free now to love other people. Everything changes. That's God's saving grace freely given through Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with what we do for God. It has everything to do with what he did for us through Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul says, listen, if you want to get into a bragging contest about obeying God's law, Paul says, I'm in. And then he gives his resume in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anybody wants to brag about the law, how about if I step up? And I'll just say this. I'm, a, I'm an absolute Jew. He said, pure-blooded, pure-blooded Jew, Paul says. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day, right? And I have a couple of pieces of evidence if you want to check. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which gave the first king of Israel. And the city of Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin. 
Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I am pure Jewish, not just by blood, but by culture. I'm a religious leader, he says, quote, of the highest order. He's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were so arrogant. We obey God's law, and we make sure everybody else does as well. He says, not only that, I was a persecutor of Christians. You want to brag about who is really keeping the law? I'm, I persecuted people who were preaching the grace through Jesus Christ. I hunted them down for death. And he says, when it came to legalistic purity, he calls himself flawless. If anybody's going to brag about keeping the law, Paul says, I'm going to win that argument. I'm going to win that argument. Now, that's what the Bible calls the flesh. Whenever we're so proud about what we do for God, that's called the flesh. The flesh is relying on our religious compliance to earn God's favor and eternal life. And I'm telling you, religious people are in the flesh all the time. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm moral, you're immoral. I'm disciplined and devoted and you're lukewarm. I mean, this is the religious thing. We rely on what we do to be somehow in God's favor. That's relying on the flesh. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul says about the flesh, and it's absolutely hysterical. He says, I consider my religious resume, which he just gave us, he says, I consider my religious resume dung. The word in your Bible is probably a little cleaner. It's probably uh, rubbish, but the word actually means dung. All this religious stuff that I've done that I could be very proud of, it's nothing. It's, it's rubbish. It's trash. It's dung. Because I have gained Christ and I'm found in him. When we are face to face with the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we realize that he is the treasure, not our religious activities and devotions and disciplines. He's the treasure. He gave us grace. He's the son of God who died on a cross to, to forgive my sin, rose again from the dead in victory to give eternal life. He's the treasure. So I'm going to look at Christ and then be really proud of my works? That just doesn't make any sense. Paul goes on to say, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And then he repeats himself. My righteousness comes from God and is by faith, not by works, not by religion, not by obedience, not by religious discipline. Some of you may have the uh, unfortunate task of having to go to a white elephant Christmas party. God help you. If you're planning one, cancel it. Nobody wants to go. There's a very famous white elephant um, gift out there, and I don't think it's been used for a while, but there was a season, I think it was in the late 90s, and it was a, a, an aluminum can that was sealed. And, you know, you give the gifts, and everybody has a good time receiving the gifts. Some are prank gifts, some are real gifts, and I remember being jealous after a two-hour session of this, being jealous that somebody got like a $3 Starbucks card. It's like, I just spent two hours, and I'm jealous of a $3 Starbucks card. One of the gifts is a sealed aluminum can, and, um, you know, you get the gift, and you're wondering, oh, what's in it? Is it a treasure? And then um, you start opening it, and you quickly realize that it's actually full of horse poop. White elephant gift, everybody laughs, super hysterical. Then a fight breaks out. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that my religious resume is an aluminum can full of dung. It's just not valuable. We think it's valuable, right? This is treasure. I obey God. I obey the commandments. I love the Ten Commandments. Paul says, well, bragging about obeying the Ten Commandments is dumb. I, I go to church, and I'm there on Sunday, and I'm there on Wednesday, and, I'm there, and I volunteer, and I give, and oh, that's great. But if you're going to present that before each other, before God, look at this very valuable thing. Man, it's, it's kind of not. 
I'm super devoted, right? And I serve and I give and I study and my doctrine is correct. Oh, I love that. My doctrine is correct. No, it's just dung. Paul says, my entire religious resume is nothing compared with the treasure of Jesus Christ. The treasure of Jesus Christ. And so the second way we can be calmly happy, become happy first in God's grace, but also be calmly happy in our journey towards Christ-likeness. When we understand the treasure that Jesus Christ is, there's no victory in my religion. There's no victory in my obedience. There's no victory in my study of God's word or my prayer. There's nothing there of any value. That's, that's just what I do in the flesh. What God has done through Christ is the real treasure. And here's the treasure. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind for for Paul? Religious devotion. Being arrogant about his religion. I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? The prize is in Philippians 3.10. He made it very clear. I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is the prize. The prize is not in religious devotion and religious checkboxing, right? The prize is knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. To know Christ is why we're here today. We are here today gathered in worship to know Christ. And so we sing about him and we pray to him. And the reason why we're studying God's word is because we want to know more about Jesus Christ. We're not here to just perform a religious duty and to check off a box. Hey, God, aren't you proud of me? I didn't sleep in today. I went to church. Oh, good for you. I, uh, I didn't, I, I, aren't you proud of me, God? I didn't go shopping. I went to church. And and isn't, isn't what I did a treasure? Eh, well. God, aren't you proud of me? I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing good religious things. I'm not sinning like that guy over there. Aren't I doing good religious things? The treasure is knowing Christ. That's why we get together. That's why we sing together. That's why we hear God's word. It's not to, to, to check the boxes of religion. It's to say we have a great pleasure here to know Jesus Christ. And when we know Christ and we know his love, we know his forgiveness, that changes everything. I can't tell you how many people I talk to every single week and they say, hey, I'm glad I get to go to church because when I go to church, I'm reminded of God's love and I'm reminded that the greatest treasure is to love others. That changes everything. It changes our family, changes every relationship. It changes how we see people in our neighborhood and at our workplace. It gives us some motivation to maybe help somebody in need or be generous. Why? Not by religious checkboxing, but by saying there is a knowledge of the love of Christ that I'm going to receive and I want to pass on. The prize is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection? The power of the resurrection is the power to make all things new. That's the power of the resurrection. God is in the, in the resurrection business. So if there is a life... If there's a life that is just depressed, a life that is just wracked with loneliness or guilt or shame or, or they're unloved, whatever it is, that life can be resurrected. Every single human life can be resurrected by the power of God, by the power of love, by the power of forgiving grace. Any family can be resurrected. God is in the business of resurrecting. God is in the business of resurrecting communities and nations and ultimately the world. God is in the resurrection business, making all things new. This is the business God is in. And so we can be calmly happy, even when things are tough, calmly happy in God's grace and calmly happy in the journey of the resurrection power journey to become more like Christ and to see all things made new. And then finally, and we're more than halfway through, calmly happy in the hope of a better future. This world is heading to a really good place. 
We can be calmly happy in the hope of a better future. Philippians 3, 19 through 21 says this, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when you talk about heaven in, in a Christian church, a lot of us might think, hey, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and I'm getting out of here, and I'm going to heaven out there, right? So get me to heaven. Well, that's not the biblical framework. The biblical framework is about getting heaven here. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus prayed, God, your, um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we look at these incredible passages throughout the scripture, particularly in, in uh, Revelation. We see this beautiful image of a, of a city, a new Jerusalem, coming from heaven down to earth. Uh, Revelation 11, 15 is this great declaration. The kingdom of the earth has become the kingdom of heaven, right? So our citizenship is in heaven. So we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus, now get this, who will bring everything under his control. Jesus Christ is in the business of bringing everything under his control right here. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says this, the will of God is to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. The world is getting better because God designed this world over time to be in line with the kingdom of heaven. Yet so many Christians, and, and believe me, I get it, we're saying, oh, the world's getting worse and, and we're just looking at news and various experiences and we're not necessarily a student of history or frankly a student of theology. We just read all kinds of books from people who aren't theologians and really don't understand the narrative of the Bible. And it's so clear that God's heart is to bring renewal to this world, to make all things new. And, and, and a lot of us just don't believe it. I just refuse to believe it because it's like a knee-jerk reaction. You know, you're a religious person, you just have to say, well, things are getting worse. And there's a certain sexiness about believing things are getting worse. There's a sexiness to say, hey, well, things are getting worse out there, but I'm not getting worse. I'm, you know, on the holy side. And, and I, my doctrine's right, and, and my morals are right. And look at all of them. There's an arrogance by thinking the world's getting worse, but I'm not part of the world getting worse. There's an arrogance about that. So it's really sexy to believe things are getting worse and headed for destruction. Also, and this is just a physiological reality, our brains are wired for threat. Our brains are hardwired for threat. We are designed as creatures to easily perceive threat and then we respond to threat. That's how we stay alive, right? We're, we're not wired to respond to good news. If, if a car is coming at us at 50 miles an hour, our brain is wired to say, that's a threat I have to get out of the way. Our brain is not wired to say, oh, that's a pretty sweet car, boom. So there's a certain cool part about that. But the reality is because our brains are not wired for good news, it's hard for us to believe good news. So, I mean, believe me, my inbox is already full from this morning. We're just not wired for it. But I want to spend our last few minutes together on this idea that the world is getting better by God's design and we can be a part of it. 50% of the world was in extreme poverty 100 years ago. Now it's 9%. U.S. homelessness has dropped 11% since 2007. Food is more available globally than ever. We are producing 300% more food on the earth with one-third less land. Cancer death uh, has decreased 10% in the last decade. Violent crime is down 71%. The number of civil wars is the least it's been in the last 100 years. In the last decade, we saw fewer deaths due to war than ever by percentage. Gun violence is down by half globally over the last 50 years. Battle deaths from war have been on a constant decline since the beginning of human history. Women's rights are on the rise globally and dramatically. Racism and bigotry are on the decline globally. IQs are up 24% worldwide over the last 50 years. 91% of elementary students globally are in elementary school. 42% of the world is online. 
Giving to charitable organizations steadily increases, 4% increase worldwide last year. Population growth will level out at 9 billion people in 2007 and be at a sustainable level. 78% of the world's forests are now protected. There are more forests now than there were 30 years ago. Renewable energy is on a dramatic rise, leading us towards global sustainability. We work less and buy more since 1950s. The majority of countries are now democracies. Used to be 15% 100 years ago. Technology is uniting the world for global good. Infant mortality has dropped 90% in the last 100 years. Child mortality has been cut in half over the same period of time. The world is safer now than ever before in human history. We are more tolerant now than ever before in human history. We earn three times more money and live one-third longer in the last 50 years. We can travel anywhere in the world and be endlessly entertained. Medicine is advancing more rapidly than can even be tracked. 3D uh, printing of body parts is now a reality. Healing at the genetic level and life expectancy continues to shoot through the roof. We give more and volunteer now more than ever. And in addition to that, and nobody has believed me today, in addition to that, we are on the edge of an incredible moral revolution. Morality globally is on a, a dramatic incline. Now, you talk to Christians and they're not gonna believe it, and I, I don't care how much I preach this, they're probably still not gonna believe it. Morality is increasing, and every single thing that I'm about to communicate to you is statistically verifiable. Bigotry is quickly becoming intolerable throughout the world. Sexism is quickly becoming intolerable throughout the world. Just look at what's happened in the last several weeks with the hashtag MeToo. It is intolerable now to mistreat women. Thank God. Morality is on a, on a rise. Child abuse is quickly becoming intolerable throughout the world. Violence is quickly becoming intolerable throughout the world. Homelessness and extreme poverty is quickly becoming intolerable throughout the world. These are moral issues that the world is rallying together by cooperation and technology to fix these things. And statistically, the fixes are happening at incredible levels. I mean, I get excited about this, but you, you know what I don't get excited about? I don't get excited about Christians going, oh, no, 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 no. Have you seen the sexual immorality out there? Hmm. You remember when we started this message about a half an hour ago, we thought it was very weird that the Judaizers were obsessed with circumcision? It's just as weird for the Christian church today to be obsessed with what happens right around these body parts. There's still this weird obsession with sexuality. There are so many good things happening in this world, and we are on the sidelines judging your sexuality and this and this is your problem, your problem. The cause of Christ is radically shaping this world because all of these things, all of these statistics, I think, can be traced back culturally to the Savior, the Son of God, born 2,000 years ago, and we get to celebrate it all next month. Born a peasant child, raised in a squatter's village, he was teaching and preaching this. Help for the poor, friends for the lonely, he was teaching for the value and the dignity and the respect and equal opportunity for women. Jesus was out there absolutely making sure that racism and bigotry of all kinds was eradicated. The apostles, including the Apostle Paul, especially the Apostle Paul, bringing Jew and Gentile races together in harmony out of love and out of grace. The cause of Christ is advancing in the world and the world is becoming a better place. The world is, is becoming more and more in line with the heart of God. And the sad thing is because of this obsession with the law and obsession with certain body parts, the Christian church is out there just like ninnies, just judging everybody else and 
putting people down and, and saying the world has never been as bad as it is today and it's headed for global destruction. And I think God's just saying, get in the game. Get in the game. There's so many exciting things happening in this world. Church, get in the game. We started this whole thing, right? Let's not sideline ourselves while the world is finally getting on board with the things that Jesus Christ taught 2,000 years ago. And we can ask this question, what do we believe we can achieve together by the power of the resurrection, the power to make all things new, the power to align earth with heaven, and we get to participate in that. Over the coming weeks, you're gonna hear about Vision 2018 around here as we get ready for a whole new year, and you will see exciting things that we get to participate in locally and globally to keep these numbers moving in the right direction and do it all in the name of Jesus Christ as we're sharing the grace of Jesus Christ, not peddling religion, not peddling law, but revealing the transforming grace of God that is for this world, not against the world, saving this world, not condemning this world, and making all things new, and he's inviting us, get in the game, let's do this together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this amazing opportunity not to do religious things, to check off religious boxes, but because we are compelled by the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the resurrection to make all things new. God, for any of us who may be um, on the grumpy side and on the judgmental side, just thinking it's getting worse and headed for destruction, I pray that you would open our eyes to a new reality, the reality that Jesus himself taught that the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is here, praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These wonderful passages like Philippians 3 and, and Ephesians chapter 1, giving this incredible declaration that, that the earth will become very much like heaven. The Revelation eleven fifteen declaration that the kingdom of the earth has become the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that you would give us a passion for this world, that we would never be against it, that we won't be sitting on the sidelines judging and condemning uh, in our own little private Christian world, but God, that we would be engaged in this world, that we would have the same heart for the world that you do, that we would want to see every evil eradicated, that we, want, we would want to see every good brought to the forefront for all people. That's your heart. I pray that we would all be on board with that, somehow serving and somehow generous and somehow getting involved in making this world a better place. For your glory, for your honor, in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen.